0: Hello, and welcome to What Happened at Harvard, a podcast produced by the Harvard Crimson. I'm Will Skinner. And I'm Sam Danella, And we're excited to introduce our very first episode. Each episode, we'll be interviewing an interesting Harvard affiliate, alums, professors, students, or community members about their experience at Harvard and how it's shaped their career and their life. So who's on the show with us today? Today, we have Nick Kristoff, an award-winning journalist for The New York Times, Nick grew up in rural Oregon, the son of two professors. At Harvard, he studied government and graduated in just three years. He also worked on Harvard's fantastic student newspaper, the Harvard Crimson. And then he won something called the Rhodes Scholarship. Vaguely rings a bell. Yeah, it's uh, kind of a big deal. And, you know, and after he studied at Oxford, he started a prolific career in journalism at the
1: New York Times where he's won a couple Pulitzer prizes. Nick is one of only a few people to have won two Pulitzer prizes, one for international reporting, one for commentary, um, and we're thrilled to have him on the show today. Nick, welcome to the show. Yeah, Good to be with you.
0: Thank you so much. Yeah, so for you coming here as a freshman, what was it like to step on campus for the very first time?
2: well indeed i had never actually been to harvard before i arrived as a as a freshman and i um i had just spent the summer in france picking fruit on uh some farms and so i had you know one bag that contained basically just farm work clothes and um Uh, So I felt a little bit out of place. Um, Harvard, I think, was probably a little preppier then than it is now. Um, And, um, um, you know, a lot of people seemed to know each other uh, from their schools, whereas, uh, you know, nobody from my school had ever gone to the Ivy League. Uh, And um, so it it was a little overwhelming and uh, somewhat intimidating, but... I had, um, you know, great roommates and uh, quickly uh, got, a, got in the swing of things. And actually, the Crimson became a pretty, a pretty good home.
1: No, I think that's something, as Crimson members, we're especially interested in hearing about uh, a little later on. Um, I guess a question related to that early experience. You res- recently sent off your third child to Harvard. Uh, looking at your children's experiences, in what ways has Harvard changed between now and your time?
2: Um I mean women are certainly much more integrated uh in Harvard now than they were when I was a student. Uh when I was there uh I'm guessing it must have been, you know, maybe I'm guessing about 65% male and so uh so it was uh there was still a sense that women were not kind of a full part of, of the Harvard community. Uh, they were getting there, but not quite there. Uh, so I think that'd be one of the big differences. I mean, also, I think um, Harvard was somewhat less diverse than it is now. Uh, there was a much bigger uh, private school community, um, much less effort to get people whose families had not been to college before, Um And, um, but I don't know, there's some continuities. I mean, then as now, everybody's always trying to figure out again, the, uh, the core curriculum and gen ed requirements and this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, everybody's trying to figure out how do you get students to go to office hours and, you
1: know,
2: there's some perennials.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Those continue for
0: sure. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you know, and so for every student on campus, uh, everyone seems to have a certain spot where everyone likes to go if that, you know, it's their kind of place. And so for you, when you were on campus, what was your spot?
2: I'd say it was a Lowell House uh, library. Um, I, I tended to work uh, there principally. I almost never worked in my room, but largely in... Um, in the Lowell House Library, um, you know, also a fair amount in Lamont. I- I'm sounding incredibly boring. <laughs> I'm just saying that my favorite spots are the libraries. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, the the Crimson was certainly a, a spot as well.
0: Right. Yeah, it's great because I'm a proud Lowellian as well. So I know that (laughs) library, like the back of my hand. It's a great spot. You know, I don't blame you. You know, one
2: of my one of my best jobs was uh, working in the Lowell Library, and uh, you know nobody ever checked out books ever, (laughs) but it kind of confined me there, so I could do, uh, I could I could work there and get paid for it. So it was a great deal.
1: It's not a bad gig at all. I think. I'm afraid this next question is not going to help you out in terms of making you seem less nerdy, which is the question, uh, did any Harvard class have an outsized impact on you?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I think uh, taking uh, statistics had a had a major impact on me. It was something sort of quantitative methods uh, was something that I hadn't, Really encountered and didn't encounter elsewhere, but it's something I use all the time. Um, likewise, EK ten, boy, you know that that had a, a hugely disproportionate impact uh, on me. Um, um, I'd say those were the the two big ones. I think if I was actually doing it over again, I would major not in government, which was what I did major in, but rather probably EC
1: huh and why why do you say that
2: um you know i think i got a little bit disillusioned with i uh, government i mean i was interested in policy. So how do we have a better, more effective government and, and national or local policy? And a lot of gov classes were much more at 30,000 feet. They were more theoretical. They didn't really address this question of how do we get a better government? How do we get a more effective political system? And in in contrast, economics... Was often just very practical, and um, you know, said, "Okay, you do this, and then maybe, why will happen?" Um, And you know, relied, I think, a little bit more on kind of robust evidence and and testing things. And I think that's probably been even more true in the years uh, since I was an undergraduate that economics has invaded all kinds of other fields. Uh, They're the imperialists of social sciences, so (laughs) they're trying to trying to provide answers with um, randomized control trials or natural experiments to try to give us a a better answer to questions about what policies work, for example.
1: Got it. Um, And sort of zooming out on your college experience as a whole, what was something that you cared about too much as a student and what was something that you cared about too little in retrospect?
2: You know, I certainly, I, 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 think I cared more about classes than a lot of students did. I was probably more academic than a lot of students were, and but I don't, I don't really regret that. I, I did learn a lot from uh, classes. Um, um, social life also, I cared a lot about, but that was, <laughs> I certainly wouldn't regret uh, the parties and, uh, uh, and. <laughs> you know the and likewise uh um the crimson was an important part, and and I don't regret that. So I'm kind of short on regrets uh, for college life.
1: I guess a happy answer. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to live life, man. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, nobody's ever going to criticize you for that. So, um, you know, and so something that a lot of us on campus, you know, have trouble with is figuring out what to do once you leave this place, right? And you had the academic track record, as you talked about sort of, uh, to go right into academia, and both of your parents are professors, and yet you chose to pursue a career in journalism. How did you make that choice?
2: Well, it was kind of a close call. Um, I mean, I really I really enjoyed uh, journalism, and so I, I, um, I felt drawn to it. I liked the writing, just the, the aesthetic element of writing. Uh, I liked the... Um, you know, I like the ego thrill of the byline um, and uh, <laughs> I like the sense of what could have an impact here or there, but at that point, it was kind of um, if you didn't know exactly what you wanted to do, it was kind of incumbent on you to go to law school <laughs> yeah. and so um, so i i I did indeed you know study law, and I was in great danger of becoming a uh, probably a law professor, uh, but i um, there was one week where I had to kind of make a, a choice between two different fates. One is a law professor. One is as a, as a journalist. And I chose journalism. And boy, I'm glad I did.
0: Yeah. And you know, you were once in our shoes, writing for the Crimson. And how did your time at the Crimson shape you as a journalist?
2: <laughs> this is gonna <laughs> this is gonna be very flattering to the Crimson. But I mean, I think that. The A lot of the really brightest people on campus uh, at that time were found uh, at the Crimson, and I think we learn a lot from other students, probably more from other students than we do from professors. And so it was a terrifically kind of stimulating, challenging uh, environment. I. I was not a. You know, there were some students who were working uh, sixty hours a week on the Crimson, and I was not. I was more focused on academics than most of the uh, of the the senior Crimson people. But I learned an awful lot about writing, uh, about management, how to get along with people when you disagree, um, from the the Crimson, and made you know. Uh, really encountered some of the terrific journalists, uh, mm-hmm. some of the best journalists I've you know I met, and a number of them uh, are now colleagues at the New York Times. Susan Chiro was uh, was president of the Crimson, uh, mm-hmm. and is. Now, a top editor of the Times, David Sanger, was my best friend on the Crimson, and is now a senior editor, a senior uh, writer in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. Um, so there have been, you know, a bunch of colleagues. Celia Duggar was uh, the editorial uh, chair and uh, is now the science editor here. So there, um, you know, yeah. you can't <laughs> escape Crimson editors; they follow you everywhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah,
0: yeah, and so, you know, you're talking about the relationships you were able to build, but, you know, I guess a lot of the, the grinding out work that we do is covering the day-to-day issues on campus. And so, you know, what were some of the major campus issues that you covered while you were at the Crimson?
2: Um, during my comp uh, freshman year, I was living in Pennypacker, and I uh, – somehow I guess they had told us how many people live – uh were living in Pennypacker and as you entered um, as you entered there was a certificate on the wall um, that uh, I think from the city of Cambridge saying how many people were authorized to uh, to to inhabit the building and it turned out that a lot fewer were authorized to be in Pennypacker than were actually there. Harvard basically stuffed more people into Pennypacker than it was allowed to. So and then I went around to the other dorms and I found that you know, almost every dorm uh, had more people in it than it was actually authorized to have. And so I wrote that uh, uh, up and Cambridge uh, city council members who Always kind of were happy to pounce on Harvard for one thing or another, <laughs> they pounced and um, so that that took up a certain amount of um, you know that that was a kind of ongoing issue for a while uh, and then, as a beat, I covered Boston University at a time when it was going through a a strike and the uh, kind of tumultuous era of uh, president john silver and um, the you know they um, I I um, and I remember calling up Derek Bach, to get a, who was president at the time to get a a quote on the uh, on Harvard's birthday, and he <laughs> somehow obliged, even though it was a not very impressive birthday. <laughs> so, um, I know I I you know I I covered all kinds of things and really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah. Well, I I think these days, you know, you continue to cover all kinds of things um, and are sort of known as a reporter who will go anywhere, even putting yourself in physical danger to tell an important story. Um, Over your career, what story have you been proudest
2: of being able to tell? I think that I would say some of the stories that were not getting a lot of attention, and I was able to help shine a little more light on them in ways that help make a difference. So it'd be a little hard to pick a, uh, a favorite child, but I, I think uh, covering Darfur uh, falls into that category, uh, maybe covering sex trafficking, um, and finally some reproductive health issues like a, a uh, something called obstetric fistula, that in each case they were somewhat neglected issues. And because they were neglected, they weren't getting resources. And it felt that I was able with others to shine a bit more of a light on them in ways that made a difference.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in terms of an issue that more directly relates to us that you've been shining a light on recently, uh, I kind of was encapsulated in your a column back in May, A Confession of Liberal Intolerance, and talking about how there's a lack of intellectual diversity both from conservatives of the political stature and then from evangelical Christians in academia. And so what do you make of this debate on college campuses today? And, you know, how would you compare that uh, to your time in school?
2: It's hard for me to, to compare... Um You know Harvard then and now, so I'm not so sure about Harvard. About Harvard particularly, Uh, there is some data that suggests that uh, American universities in general became, uh, and especially social sciences became uh, uh, more. ideologically homogeneous beginning i think in the late 1990s uh that you know that's it's it's not a perennial phenomenon but a uh but has been accentuated um and likewise there is data on the uh, proportion of faculty at various institutions who donate to Republican candidates versus Democratic candidates and I remember I, I talked to one university president who said that 98 percent of his faculty donated to to uh, to Democrats. Um, so uh, indeed I, I think this is a, uh, a problem and I think diversity of all kinds is incredibly important and that that involves uh, obviously racial and ethnic and gender diversity. I also think it involves a diversity of backgrounds. So I think it would be great to get more people with a military background uh, at Harvard. Uh, more people with a, um, um, a kind of more impoverished uh, background. Uh, more socioeconomic uh, diversity. And I also think it's important, especially in the social sciences, to have greater um, ideological diversity. I mean, economics is certainly an area where there are um, some conservatives. In some other uh, disciplines, especially in the social sciences, it's really hard to find a conservative. I mean, finding a conservative sociologist is... (laughs) anywhere in America is kind of a struggle. Um, And I think sociology would be better off if there were uh, more conservatives. Um, I think a different issue
1: that would be particularly interesting to students at Harvard is the notion of balancing a career with a family. Um, You know that in your case, you, you report on these issues that are really global in nature, um, and at the same time, you have a wife and three kids. In your brain, how do you sort of balance these two competing goods, you know, on one hand, the good of global um, reporting, and on the other hand, the good of a really close intimate family?
2: Um, that is a huge challenge, and, you know, uh, a balancing act, and it was for my wife as well, and... Um, the, I don't think there's any kind of perfect answer to that. I, I did, uh, try to the extent possible to bring the kids along on some of these trips. Um, so, um, it, you know, it was partly because it was more fun for me and partly because it was interesting for them. Uh, and that, that helped to some degree, but I was still traveling, um, a lot and, um, you know, sometimes to places that are that are problematic uh, and um, um, so uh, but I did manage to get uh, two of my kids uh, arrested with me on trips and you know, <laughs> being that's a great great you know father son bonding experience to uh, to be arrested in <laughs> in uh, China or or Sudan
0: yeah you know it's like you know deciding between family vacations Hawaii or the Congo <laughs> you know
2: you know right <laughs> right
0: um
1: um, I guess a broader question than that, sort of on the same theme, um, which is an impossibly broad question, I think, in some sense, is how do you find a moral calling? You know, when you're when you're our age or in college in general, how do you go about finding something that resonates with who you are?
2: I I think that if one's open to it, it will find you. Um, I I I think kind of one of the issues is whether to be open it and to it, and uh, I guess. One bit of advice I would push against is the idea that is sometimes heard among students that the first one-third of your life you should study, the middle third you should make a ton of money, and the final third you should give back. And I really think that's just terrible advice, (laughs) partly because finding some thing you care about and want to uh, make a difference on, I think – is just really important for a, um, kind of for a balanced life, for, for happiness. Uh, And so I think delaying that sense of purpose until the last one third of one's life is a, is a really bad idea. And that one can integrate it, whatever it is, and everybody will have a different um, take about, you know, what, what moves them, what they care about, but integrating that whatever it is with one's family, with one's career, with one's free time, I think uh, helps one keep perspective when things go bad at work or, uh, or, you know, in in life itself. And um, I, I, you know, I likewise think that that can be useful um, at uh, for a student at university or grad school to have some. Uh, something one is doing to maybe it's to teach people part time or, or tutor people or coach whatever but it just also keeps one's own good fortune in perspective and um, I think um, is um, is beneficial to oneself as well well
0: Nick on that note I just want to say thank you so much for joining us on the program we really appreciated your company
2: my pleasure, and uh, I'll, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit embarrassed that my favorite places were things like libraries, uh, but I'll come up with some good adventure stories, uh, too, <laughs> for the next time. Awesome. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks to Mario Klein, Tom Frank, Tim Devine, Zach Royal, and Nick Kristoff for making this possible. We'd also like to thank WHRB 95.3
1: FM, Cambridge the home of all things Harvard Radio. Thanks for listening to our first episode of It Happened at Harvard from the Harvard Crimson. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and tune in again next time. I'm Sam Danella, And I'm Will Skinner. And have a good one, folks.